This is Lent on Table Radio. Today's sermon was preached on Sunday, March 6th by Anna Spray. My soul. Well, hey there, table friends. Thank you for joining us. It is the beginning of Lent, week one. And we are continuing in our series in Matthew. We've just done the parables of Matthew 13. And now we're looking into Matthew chapter 16. And I'm going to read to you verses 5 to 12. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, It's because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You of little faith, why are you talking amongst yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood. He was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as I said, we finished Matthew chapter 13, which is full of the parable teachings of Jesus. And now we're in chapter 16. So I'm going to try to catch you up on three chapters of action in just two paragraphs. So here we go. After teaching the parables, Matthew says that Jesus moved on. And a series of events start happening at a very rapid pace. John the Baptist is beheaded. There's a huge loss to this new church that's just starting to emerge. And Jesus withdraws away from the disciples, away from the crowds, to mourn the loss of his friend. But he's followed by an enormous crowd of people, 5,000 men plus women and children. Back then, they only counted men, so we can assume that the number was greater than 5,000. And these people are desperate to hear more from Jesus. And so in the middle of nowhere, he provides food for all of them. Then Jesus withdraws again, sending the disciples away by boat so he can really be alone. He rejoins them by walking over the water at dawn. Peter, famously, gets out of the boat, starts to sink, and Jesus saves him from drowning. And more crowds descend, with more people bringing their sick friends to Jesus for healing. All this action and miracles, and then enter the Pharisees. They come to challenge Jesus and cast doubt upon everything that's happened. They don't like the attention Jesus is attracting, and they resent the crowds that continue to pursue him. So, they engage with Jesus in a war over law. Is he really a law-abiding Jew? Or is he fake? Their conversation with Jesus sows a seed of doubt in the disciples' minds, even after the walking on water and the miraculous feedings, which they all witnessed with their own eyes. And in chapter 15, verse 12, they begin to question Jesus. The Pharisees' plan is working. 
he is losing credibility with his own disciples. So Jesus responds to their questions, and he proceeds to do more miraculous things. He, <coughs> excuse me. He heals the daughter of the Canaanite woman. He feeds 4,000 men plus women and children, and he heals more people. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees return, attempting to sow doubt once again. The pattern repeats. Jesus does something great, people respond in faith, and the enemy comes to question and to sow doubt. And this pattern repeats over and over in our lives again and again. Jesus meets us, we encounter him, we respond in faith, and then over the passage of time, we start to question and to doubt him once again. This is a pattern we experience throughout the Christian life. And when we reach that place of doubt, we need to look back and to recount the time that Jesus met us in a miraculous way. Instead, what many people do is they scramble, looking for something else. Jesus plus something. Jesus plus materialism. Jesus plus success. Jesus plus my own wisdom, my own philosophies. Fill in the blank. We hedge our bets and turn to other things when we doubt that Jesus will really be enough for us. The Pharisees and Sadducees were adding to Jesus with the law. And since none of us can serve two masters, the law went out for them. Now, maybe you don't feel Jesus has met you in a particularly miraculous way. Well, then what do you do? Jesus says, you ask, you pray, you approach him. Lord, I'm doubting your love for me. I need you. And either way, whether we have a lot of faith or very little, the solution when we doubt is to turn towards God, to pursue him, to turn into him. But the devil and the world encourage us to turn away from God at just the very moment when we need him the most. The Pharisees and Sadducees were the two major forces among the people of God at this time. And Jesus is warning his disciples against their sensationalism. The Pharisees like to engage in a lot of religious showmanship, ostentatious hand-washing, for example. The Sadducees, for their part, were kind of more the other end of the spectrum, a little more secular. And they demanded a sensational sign from Jesus to prove that he was legitimate. Both groups wanted something more something outside of God to authenticate that Jesus was who he said he was. Frederick Bruner calls this sensationalism, more-ism, when we're not satisfied with the sufficiency of the suffering and resurrected Christ. We demand something more. Accepting Jesus on his own terms is hard for humanity to conform to. False teachers consider simple faith in the crucified and risen Jesus to be too simple, The appetizers, not really the meal. What more can we add to Jesus so that we feel secure? What do we add to our faith so that faith itself becomes unnecessary? Jesus plus horoscopes? Jesus plus cryptocurrency? What is it that we rely on outside of God to give us security? 
this chapter, Jesus warned his disciples to keep on the alert, to watch constantly for the leaven of these leaders. And they kind of stupidly think Jesus is talking about actual bread. And certainly, over the previous feeding miracles, they're so silly to ever worry about bread again. Twice now, they've had more than enough bread to feed thousands of people. They've, They've had to gather up the extras in baskets. So why would they ever worry about bread? No, Jesus is warning them about the pervasive, insidious nature of doubt. The seed of doubt that once planted can flourish unchecked and can start to threaten the healthy foundation of our own faith. Time and time again, we are tempted to look at what we have and not who we have. When we have a moment of weakness, we mistakenly try to tally up our spiritual scoreboards. What has Jesus done for me? What has he failed to do for me? The Pharisees ask for a sign from heaven because they're tallying up points in Jesus' favor. Points for him, points against him. But the insufficiency of Jesus is not the problem. The problem is our unbelief in his sufficiency. The disciples just witnessed several of the most miraculous events in all of human history. And yet, they're worrying about bread? A little leaven, like a little fire, can be a really dangerous thing. Father of the church, St. Jerome, said heretical doctrine, false doctrine, if it have cast but a small spark into your breast, in a short time a mighty flame is raised and drives the whole temper of the person along with it. Unbelief, doubt, can take off like wildfire in our souls. One spark, one seed, and if it goes unchecked, it starts to take root, and our faith itself can be threatened. But when doubt does come, when unbelief comes to our door, it is not Jesus that we should doubt. It is our own faith and understanding of him that needs reinforcement. Instead of doubting Jesus, we should recognize our faith just needs more help. We need further fortification. John Calvin, a a famous figure of the Reformation, thought this Sadducean leaven, as it was called, was actually atheism, which is kind of interesting, considering how religious the first century was. Other theologians speculate this is plain old skepticism, doubt, or cynicism, all things that we are well familiar with. When I was at university here in Victoria, I was in a very small cohort of students studying Aboriginal history, which in the early 2000s was kind of unusual. My fellow classmates were totally bewildered by my Christian faith. They did not understand it at all. Why would anyone in their 20s follow Jesus? They they blamed the church for a lot of the ills of society, and they, they linked that blame to God himself. Why would I care about an invisible God? Cynicism and skepticism was far more a logical and accepted viewpoint for them rather than faith. Why would anyone live their life by faith? And when we start to question our faith, it's easy to fall prey to cynicism. It is actually kind of natural to allow cynicism to take over and to view our own belief with a negative eye but we should not lose sight of Jesus. 
Just after this interaction in chapter 16, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say I am? We should always ask ourselves that question. Who is Jesus? Who do I think Jesus is? And then once we've assessed our own answer to that question, we should go ask that question to others, to look at the Bible and say, who's Jesus in the Bible? To ask our Christian friends, pastors, who do you think Jesus is? Press in to that question always. Don't back away from it. Don't try to avoid it. Because asking that question leads us to pursue Jesus further. And pursuing Jesus leads us to firmer faith foundation and leads us to a stronger place of faith in him. I think often the mistake that many Christians make is they start to experience doubt, which is natural, but then they withdraw. They withdraw from the church. They withdraw from their faith community. And of course, over time, that compounds upon itself. And the seed of doubt takes root further and further and they just fade away. But if we press into our doubts, if we are compelled to pick up scripture and to engage with it, to to come and, and participate in Christian community, to ask for people to pray for us, God will fortify our belief. Matthew lumps the Sadducees and Pharisees together. Their issue is one and the same. They both want more of than Jesus. Jesus alone is not enough for them. Well, I'm sorry to say it, but Christian faith is an all-or-nothing life. It's impossible to hold Christianity in one hand and another way of life in the other and expect them to coexist together. Jesus is an exclusive kind of guy. And I do realize how controversial that is in our world today. It is an offense to many in our world that wants to value all opinions and all faith as being equal. But Jesus is equal to no one. It would be much more convenient if we could swear allegiance to him and to something else, but we can't. Worldliness, super-spiritualism, secularism, whatever rival to Jesus there is in our lives, it will always create a tension when we attempt to pair it with faith in Jesus. So, can we be satisfied with Jesus alone? Or do we need something more? Let's look at verse 16. Sorry, chapter 16, verses 9 and 10. Jesus reminds them there of the miraculous feedings they've just experienced. Not only should the remembrance encourage their faith, but the point of the math is that the less the disciples had, Five loaves for 5,000 is less than seven loaves for four. And the bigger their problem became, 5,000 hungry people versus 4,000 hungry people, the more Jesus did. He beats the math. Jesus shows himself as Lord by being completely superior to all realistic calculations. There's no way anyone else could have ever fed that many people in the middle of nowhere But Jesus did it twice. So, when has Jesus beaten the math for you? When has he showed up in unexpected ways, despite impossible odds, and made provision for you? 
What were your lo five loaves for 5,000? What is your story of a time when Jesus was there in a miraculous way? And how quickly do we forget those stories? How long till we began to doubt again? Throughout the New Testament, we see the disciples struggling with their faith, and they are us. Every time we witness them having, faith, having doubts in Jesus, we are meant to turn and look at ourselves and ask, where do I doubt Jesus? Where do I fail to trust him? So hold on to those moments in life when Jesus provided for you beyond your expectations and then refer back whenever you struggle to trust him. Jesus is superior to all realistic calculations. He defies logic. Together, the two feedings in Matthew equal grace. Grace cancels everything else out. Grace doesn't calculate what we have, what we don't have. Grace doesn't care if we have five loaves or 5,000. It doesn't care about the details. Bruner says, what does matter is that there is a miraculous Lord to whom we can give whatever we are and whatever we have. He's not particular. Whether we have five loaves or none, Jesus will still provide for us. He will still care for us. His grace is still sufficient for all our needs. But the disciples still don't get it. Why can't you see? I'm not talking to you about bread, Jesus says in frustration. He is talking about faith, which is the child of grace, and teaching, which is faith's midwife, so to speak. The Pharisees, the super spiritual, and the Sadducees, the super secular, both represent extremes on a spectrum that we know very well. And both extremes require a sensation, a sign to be proof that God is real. But the search for signs is really a signal of unbelief. And for people such as the Pharisees, more teaching just becomes another kind of worldliness. It doesn't help legalistic, super spiritual people just to pursue further academics. It can become a further stumbling block. But if their heart isn't engaged, it doesn't help. What they need is faith to believe in that which they have studied. And as for the secular people, they need teaching. They need the chance to explore Jesus and ask questions so that their faith and knowledge and trust in him might grow. Faith and teaching are both necessary for the Christian life. You know, sometimes here at the table, <laughs> Josh and Andy and I can be accused of being a little overly academic. We love to dive into the minutia of scripture to see how long I'm talking here. <laughs> but we do this because we love Jesus. And for us, exploring his word leads us to deeper love for him. It, it bolsters and builds up our faith, and it's exciting and increases our love for him. But not everybody is that way. Uh, for some of us, scripture is a mystery, a stumbling block even. We struggle to read it. We struggle to understand it. So we need faith to lead us into the word. We need worship and prayer and community to, to surround us and, and lead us to the place where we can try to absorb what Jesus is trying to teach us. Faith and teaching. 
We all need these essential ingredients to know and to love and to follow Jesus. If we were to only pursue knowledge as an academic exercise, our hearts would be cold, not engaged at all. And love for God and for others wouldn't be kindled there. If we didn't feed our mind on God's word, when our hearts grow cold, there would be no fuel to fire them up again. We need both the mind and the heart, word and faith, to live a holistic Christian life, a life that sustains. Jesus is not talking about bread. (laughs) The yeast of the Pharisees is a metaphor, and yeast, as we've discussed in previous weeks, is a sneaky kind of thing. It permeates everything. It's small and hard to spot, and before you know it, it's everywhere. The words of the Pharisees and Sadducees were sowing doubt. And if the disciples don't pay attention, that yeast is going to permeate the whole dough, their whole faith. And when the bread rises, it will be too late to root out that seed of doubt. Based on the disciples' experience of two miraculous feedings plus countless other miracles, that yeast should die immediately. The very moment the Pharisees and Sadducees pose these doubts, the disciples should totally disregard them. Forget what they have said, because they believe what they have seen. They have witnessed miracles. So why would they listen to what some old cranky men have to say? What we have witnessed, what we know that we know, should dismiss the seeds of doubt that the world threatens to plant. It's normal to doubt, but we need to be careful that our doubt doesn't take root and overtake our faith. And if you have trouble recounting the faithfulness of God, go talk to somebody whose gift of faith is unshaken. This is why we need Christian community. Find someone in your neighborhood table or your weekly small group or your DNA group whose faith seems strong, and lean on them. Ask them to pray for you. Ask them to take you through a piece of scripture you don't understand. Ask them to answer your questions about God. Pursue Jesus because he is pursuing you. He is active. He is at work. His kingdom is coming. And even in this moment of crisis in our world, even as bombs are falling in the Ukraine, Jesus is here. He is with them. He is with us. What do you remember that Christ has done for you? What moment can you recount that God was really present in your life? Because of this repeated seeding of doubt, Jesus breaks ties with the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he encourages the disciples to do the same. Solus Christus, Christ alone, Christ and nothing else. And if there are forces in your life that continue to lead you to doubt Jesus, you may need to ignore them for a while, and Lent's a really good time to do that. Practice the discipline of focusing just on Jesus. Block out other distractions and press into him. This is why in Lent we encourage spiritual disciplines like 
prayer or fasting or giving our money away so that these things help us to focus on Jesus and to tune out distractions that might see doubt. Christ alone is sufficient for us. Let us not turn to the left or the right and just focus on him. Let's pray. Gracious God, help our unbelief. Help us to remember and recount the miraculous things you have done for us. Help us to discount the seeds of doubt that threaten us and to just focus only on you. And Lord, when those times of doubt come, even now as we pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and pray for their safety, help us, Lord, to trust in you. Lead us to your word, to prayer, to whatever helps to reinforce and build up our faith. Thank you, Lord, that you are not threatened by our doubts, that you continue to pursue us because you love us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Table Radio, an extension of the life of the Table Church, a community in Victoria, B.C. Our mission together is to love God, love each other, and to love and bless our neighbors so that we may see Christ revealed in life. Music for this episode provided by Richard Charter. For more information, go to richardchartermusic.com. To learn more about our community, please go to tablechurch.ca. Have mercy. Have mercy, oh God, have mercy on me, have mercy, have mercy, oh God, have mercy on me, my Sword.